Welcome to Think Digital Futures, where I tell you stories from and about the digital age. I'm your host, Lawrence Bull. This week, we're doing something different to our usual storytelling format. We're talking to Professor Carolyn McGregor about how she uses big data not only to help save the lives of premature babies, but also to monitor the mental health of astronauts destined for Mars. Here's Carolyn McGregor. Big data is something, it has a different variant. It doesn't just mean lots of data. It has a particular concept and a function, and it really relates to the work that I do more now, and that is data predominantly from sensors or data that is coming in perpetually over time. So you could say in some senses that purchasing behaviour and purchasing information is data that comes over time. But it's not the same as a heart rate sensor that is giving you information every second or even Twitter and you're trying to scrape Twitter and uh, as the terminology is in terms of pulling data out of Twitter. But you've got those constant feeds of information. So big data has a velocity. It comes in at a certain speed. It has a volume. There's lots of people or, or lots of sensors that you're acquiring from. has variety. There's lots of different types of things. So we talk about the V's as in the letter of the alphabet V in big data. And it's really, initially it was volume, velocity and variety. There's lots of other V's. People, I think, got to the point where they were going through the dictionary and working out (laughs) what other V they could use. Um, But that's really what it means. And it's really only been um, in the last 10 to 15 or really 15 years now that we've had technology that can perpetuate so many different senses. And now we have tools that very easily are able to process and work with that type of data. It's like we're in this age of constant monitoring now. We're we're, we're monitoring everything. And what do you think is the scope for that? The scope is enormous. And when I was just describing before about the fact that this area has only been around for 10 to 15 years, the, the other piece I was going to add was that in critical care medicine, they've had these type of monitors for 50 years because that's roughly how long critical care units have been set up as a by label and with these types of monitoring devices. But they've never really had the ability to take all that data and have a computing system that at the same time can keep up with the data and run lots and lots of different analysis on it. So we're getting to the point where we can really start to understand for ourselves and other like healthcare environments can understand of ourselves a lot more about how our body's behaving or we can understand weather patterns differently or tire, you know, information about um, a range of different scenarios in life, be it with people or animals or the environment or, or machinery. We can start to watch at a much lower granular, so much faster frequency of change, watch all the information And then from there, we can look for lots and lots of different things, either later on or straight away. So that brings us now to where the majority of your work is put into big data and its relationship with premature babies or Mm -hmm. neonatology. How are those two linked? Well, one of the things that we're starting to look at is that if you only 
pay attention to the heart rate signal second to second to ensure the baby's staying alive. And you only take a step back every hour and say, I think over that hour, I think the heart rate was one particular value. There is a much more detailed story that's being missed. And if you think about frequencies in the neonatal population, a baby's heart beats every hour about 8,000 times. They breathe more than 2,000 times. And we measure blood oxygen every second. So that's 3,600 readings every hour. And so if you think about the fact that when they take that helicopter view of how is the baby going? Are they on a good trajectory that they're just sleeping and growing and their body's continuing to develop? Or are they starting to have some issues that they have to work out what's going wrong because the baby's not just doing that sleep, feed, sleep, feed, awake function? Um, when you're only using the things, the elements like the heart rate and the respiration, the blood oxygen, in the moment to say, are they still alive? And at that helicopter view later on, you're not um, looking at those subtle behavior changes. So for what we started to look at was infection. And there'd been some early research to say that the heart rate started to have a different style of beat-to-beat -beat behavior uh, for babies who were developing infection. So you can relate this to yourself too, that if you have a cold, um, you don't feel like you can, you know, jump up and run and do and be excited. You're sort of like, oh, come and see me tomorrow. I don't <laughs> feel like that. And also you don't feel like you can be as calm as re and restful. And what's happening is your nervous system is regulating your heart. So what happens when you're unwell and what research is continuing now to show is that your heart rate becomes a lot more similar. The beat-to-beat behavior becomes similar. But when you're more healthy, your nervous system can make your heart rate speed up and slow down. And it's that type of behavior that we started looking for that other research was just showing had potential. And we started to look for in this beat-to-beat-to-beat behavior for the babies. But what we were able to do that's different is that because of the technology that I'm using and the platform that I'd set up with my computing knowledge was that we were correlating not just the heart rate, but we were looking at the breathing behavior and the blood oxygen behavior and the blood pressure behavior. And because we were bringing all of those things together, we were helping to solve some questions um, that other researchers had that they couldn't quite figure out. So it isn't just infection that makes heart rate slow down. It's also um, certain drugs that you can have in their treatment it can also be when they receive new blood so we were able to start to tease out and show these different types of behaviors and so they're some of the things that we are doing either taking data we've collected and exploring it or showing how we can look for things for the babies in real time and we're now at the point you know it's taken a few years to get the architecture to show that we can get it to work, to build up the library of information for babies. We needed to run it in parallel so that we could measure what we were doing compared to what the doctors do because we have to prove these things work because lives are at stake. And now I'm really excited that we're right now at the point where we're going to start bringing it to the bedside for them to start to use in the care for the babies. And when we're talking about monitoring, is there a link in between work that you do with premature babies and also extremely premature babies, which might be even younger or born at a much younger period mm. during the pregnancy? 
Yeah, so there's some interesting um, conditions that only impact the much younger babies. They can do what's known as forgetting to breathe because the brainstem area hasn't fully developed and so they can have pauses in the breathing just because of their age of development. The eyes are not developed until about 32 weeks gestation. And so um, there's a number of different treatment practices and, and procedures we can help with, one of which is managing how much oxygen a baby gets and helping them. We've, try, we've looked at now giving them new tools that they can keep better track of how much oxygen these babies get because um, some of the younger generation listening may not know as well, but some of the others may know of uh, Stevie Wonder, the musician who's blind. Many people don't know that he's blind because he was born premature and at the time was part of a new approach to providing oxygen to premature babies, but they didn't know that uh, too much oxygen can damage the developing eye, and that's actually what made Stevie Wonder go blind. And is there other areas that this monitoring looks at beside perhaps oxygen and breathing? Mm. Are there other things that you monitor in, in particular? Oh, absolutely. Um, we're now trying to investigate um, brain development activity. So we've recently published some work on how we can automate the detection of what's called sleep and awake cycling. So as the brain develops, it starts to build up that ability to go into a sleep state and then come out into an awake state and to cluster to group those sleep and awake states together you may know that as you sleep you sort of go down into a deeper sleep come up and go down again and it but it's all part of a longer sleep cycle and so we're showing how we can help on a larger scale monitor the baby's brain development by watching the behavior of the development of sleep-wake cycling you were talking about these technologies that you now have and you know we have all this data that we're now able to keep track of as opposed for it to you know be lost forever and we're lost out of memory what what further advances or what else are you hoping to be able to do in this setting we we've moved beyond just working in neonatology to not only adult medicine but you'd be surprised to know that mental health presents a lot of opportunities um, new research is showing that even monitoring again heart rates says a lot about depressive state or um, whether people are drowsy or a number of other things uh, so we're doing that and even my newest work now in working with tactical operators and helping them to train and learn to how to manage their own body some really exciting work and then um, also working with um, astronauts in how they can monitor but even in the neonatal population there are a number of different conditions that we're now looking at what we can see in physiology around the time that babies are being diagnosed with these conditions so the opportunities are mind-blowing it really represents a whole new wave of medical discovery by purely relying on data as opposed to the wet lab type basic science that's been the only approach to medical discovery in the past and it, and it could have as much of a disruptive influence as the genetic type research that, that that's coming now astronauts that's yep. fascinating how do you go from using this data for the smallest people on the planet to those who are literally going off the planet like what is the link there well it's funny the the actual link is the fact that i had the great opportunity of meeting a canadian ast- former canadian astronaut who now runs a healthcare facility in the toronto area 
and um, he's very interested in bringing these types of technologies to provide onboard support for astronauts because most of their or all of their health care is provided by essentially telemedicine to ground-based clinicians and so we're trying to look at new approaches but from a from a medical perspective people honestly they say to me you know babies astronauts really (laughs) but um, as I mentioned before babies have to go through an adaptive process because they're needing to grow outside the womb instead of inside the womb so that has implications on that developing process and for an astronaut when they go into space, the weightlessness impacts their body in, um, and, and can cause um, muscle degradation and a whole lot of other complications, fluid retention or the fluid load spreads differently in your body. And that causes um, potentially some clinical problems. So both populations, what we're trying to monitor is their, um, their ongoing health state through an adaptive process. And the only other populations that have that type of thing are miners if they go down say for example below two kilometers underground and also people who do deep sea diving so it really there, there actually is a, a, a research link and it just happened to be that I also had the opportunity to to meet with a um, former astronaut who introduced me to the Canadian Space Agency who introduced me to NASA and now I'm also working with the wow. Russians it's it's amazing <laughs> I, I sort of the smile you can probably you know the listeners can't hear it maybe they can hear it in my voice but the <laughs> smile just comes up on my face it's because I really enjoy what I do I think in a day you said there were 90 million data points that you'd, mm-hmm. you'd monitor from a premature baby. Mm-hmm. What sort of data points are you looking at? So from the premature baby, we have data fields like the electrocardiogram, which is that source signal, that beat-to-beat wave you may have seen if you ever looked at like a critical care monitor where you can see where all the valves are opening and closing in the heart. So that can generate a 1,000 readings a second. And then from that, the heart rate, second-by-second reading is derived. Even the the breathing behavior is actually derived from the same leads. And there's um, the chest wall movement from those same leads is about 60 readings a second. And then we also have blood oxygen saturation, blood pressure when we have it. And so all of those combined, it adds up to about 90 million data points a day. Wow. So, so the difference is that you can know almost instantaneously. Is that the distinction with, with now that you have big data and continuous streams of big data? It's not just that you can know when you can need to know. They, it, there was just too much data to even retrospectively do this manually. They just did not have the means to look at a monitor or even somehow acquire the tracing later. The, the volume of data is just too much for a human to process. So we really needed the tools to be able to process it in ways that we haven't been able to before. So you, sometimes you're in a situation where you're collecting data and you might see a trend uh, or, or something specific where you know what's going on, but you aren't able to affect the, the treatment of the baby. Yeah, it's an uh, awkward situation in, in medical research because you really need to go through these different stages and... Um, so some of the ways that we do to avoid that, I guess, ethical dilemma is that even though our systems run in real time, 
we don't actually look at the results of of the of that running in real time until afterwards and we know that we're testing the ability of the system to run in real time but we're actually not reviewing the data until afterwards and it it, it allows us to ensure that we follow the ethical protocols of the study that we're not at the point of impacting care uh, but when we move on to the next stage where the doctors will be receiving Im- the information, then that's at a point where it'll be impacting care. Can you think of, of, of specific um, times when that's been difficult for you to, to see that kind of the story in the numbers and know that that's a real baby story? There must be some kind of emotional component to oh, that. Oh, there's... There's definitely an emotional component when I walk into the unit, when I hear about the baby's cases, when we look at the data. These are human lives and their lives. No one ever wants the child to die before them. And whether it's my own child there or somebody else's, you have that reality that this is a small, fragile person who deserves every opportunity in life. And particularly in my own case, um, when I started doing the work with the first neonatologist, I was pregnant myself and my first daughter passed away it was born premature she had a rare chromosome abnormality and so even with all the work that i do her path is still the same so i it it is an emotional thing for me and the fact that i can work in this space and to be able to have the potential to contribute and help other families is very satisfying in it all do you think that your daughter would have benefited today or are we not at that point yet in her particular case she had a chromosome abnormality that's that was created at the very first cell divide it fundamentally impacted the way a body was developing in a way that uh, was her the conditions in terms of her body development were such that being able to have these types of systems still wouldn't have helped the the way that her body was developing um and you know that it, that is reality. These types of tools are not going to be able to create that great opportunity for all the different types of things that can happen through the development of a child. But in that situation where you know babies are born, the mother might be in a car accident, have had a fall, or there is problem with the placenta, or problem with the amniotic fluid, or something, and they need to uh, you know have the baby born. Um, it's my hope that we're trying to do everything that we can so that that baby can grow outside of the womb with as much uh, or the least amount of damage that that environment then creates to them for their ongoing lifelong journey. There's a lot of babies who have been in neonatal intensive care who have long-term issues with their breathing. There are babies who go blind. There are babies who... There's a high correlation of babies who go on to have ADHD in the school setting or they, they struggle with learning. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of opportunities in that setting, but not necessarily for my daughters, for a repeating condition with my daughter. It's interesting to hear the different stories. The babies sort of come to life, if it may sound weird, but the babies sort of come to life in the data stories that we see in the history. And, you know, you can see babies who have the heart conditions or babies who were just born premature and some of them that even from a very early age you can see in the data behaviours that they really had very few complications through their journey. And so you can almost live, relive the journey of these babies when you go back and you look at all the data that we have as they've grown and developed. Mm-hmm. 
what are the, the overlapping data points between neonatal care and astronauts? Within the astronaut population, there's still quite an emphasis and focus on the, the heart rate stream or the electrocardiogram. The electrocardiogram we can still use in the astronaut space to understand their general health. Um, and it actually then extrapolates further across to the mental health population. So it's interesting that the understanding, the even the heart rate variability, as much as we're using it to show infection in a neonate or the impact of a drug dosage or the impact of a blood transfusion, it can also be used in an adult population for mental health, for depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. And astronauts are sort of that other spend of the spectrum in health that they're very healthy elite, essentially athletes. But there are still features that we can look for in a different way, different types of features that we're still using the information from the heart rate stream and in, and in fact just the variability that can tell us um, certain aspects when we combine that with um, other measures of breathing and, and blood oxygen even that we could see information about how they're coping. Are they pressing buttons on a smartphone or something like that to say how they feel and what their anxiety levels are or what emotions they're going through? So there's been research completed by others that traditional post-traumatic stress disorder questionnaires are completed and then that then also their heart rate variability is collected and they've been able to correlate between a higher post-traumatic stress disorder score and a lower heart rate variability so they're sort of opposing so there's research already out there in that regard in our particular study design because I'm a computer scientist the work that we've been doing to date is how can we create the environment to do those types of tests? So what we have is a computer game. It's called, um, sorry, it's called Armour 3, which is a readily available in the um, retail setting, a first-person shooter game. And we mar we're using an on-the-body haptic garment, so a garment that provides you with feedback that allows you to feel things that are happening in the game. So you can feel the the impact on your body when you fire a weapon you can feel to a certain extent when you get hit on your tr on your body or on your arms and also if someone's grabbing at you to do hand signals you can feel that and all of that data about what's happening to you and what's happening in the game and your own physiology I've collected in a new partner platform to the Artemis platform which is what I use with the babies we've called it Athena for after the Greek goddess of warfare and wisdom and that integrates the gaming with the physiology data so that we can, because they've used, they haven't sort of brought it all together while they're playing the game. And so what we're now looking at is how we can allow them to use that during training and also for post-traumatic stress disorder to, because when you bring all of the data together, you can really see what's triggering what. You're reading their emotional state from their performance in the game yes if so um, you can introduce certain stresses in the game so if you think about um, tactical policing or so policing that go into schools when there's you know somebody in a school or in a shopping center or in a cafe and they have to go um, whether if 
in particular one of the scenarios we've been looking at is building clearing so they have to actually go in and find the bad person and so in those scenarios they have to manage their own physiology so that they're they're healthy and they can think well while they're going through that exercise and so what we're trying to do is uh, giving them that ability to see what their own physiology does when they're going through that scenario as part of a computer game and ultimately we also think that we can connect them when they're simulating those training scenarios in real life as well. The work that's being done to date in using virtual reality in the mental health space is to re-immerse people in a similar environment who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, to re-immerse them to try and help them to deal with the things that they've seen and deal with what's caused them the traumatic stress or and to help them to um, to be able to deal with that situation and potentially not have the same reactions. But what they don't have is that integration of as they're re-immersed in that environment, what's their physiology doing? They use some um, visual cues or it could be completely separate. It's usually just like visual and other cues that the psychiatrists will use. And we're trying to provide this much a different perspective by giving the actual physiological information about what their heart rate and everything else is doing in that scenario. Do you see this sort of technology of being able to reach a broader audience? Do you think that it, it will one day be used for the general population? Oh, absolutely. So we've taken what we do in the neonatal population into the home setting because some babies do go home with monitors and shown that we can do that. And also now with the prevalence of the Fitbit and the iWatch and these other devices that allow for physiological data collection, there's enormous protection. Uh, there's enormous potential. One of the challenges that we have at the moment is that a lot of those non-medical grade devices, uh, the data that's collected is what we call proprietary or it's it's in only a certain format known to the company who makes the product and they don't make the data available so we can integrate it with other data but over time there'll be there are new devices that are coming out that make it a lot easier to get all of the data out and i think there's a lot of benefits that anyone who's wearing a fitbit or a smart sort of smart watch or any of those devices they're learning about their own bodies in ways that they've never had before is that something that you do yourself I actually have not gone down the pathway of monitoring my own body because I've, I mean, through all of this, I've learned a lot about what's likely to be happening in my body. And to, to be quite honest, one of the main reasons that I don't use any of those devices is that I don't like the way they look and I don't like the way they feel. Uh, I'm a small, petite lady and the size of the eye watch is ridiculously huge on my wrist and the other devices aren't built as devices I would choose to wear. Uh, but I have learned a lot about what can be seen in physiological data streams and various things. And the other interesting thing that a lot of studies are showing is that the current style of technology for those devices, people usually only wear them for about six months. And they, during that six months, they learn a lot about their body, but then they've learnt it. And it's not providing them with any additional value anymore. And then they tend to not worry about wearing it because they've learned how many steps they do in a day. And they've learned about what happens and what can make their heart rate change. And once they've learned that, they're not no longer getting any extra value. So the aim perhaps um, would be to integrate it more seamlessly into people's lives. Yes. And not only integrate it more seamlessly, but integrate it to 
helping them understand when the trajectory is changing. As I mean, we all have a natural trajectory as we get older, but then there's you know trajectories when you're becoming unwell, or trajectories when you're developing issues with your heart or other systems. And we need better ways to help people understand when when those things are happening. And uh, we're on the pathway to that, but there aren't the tools for that yet. And it's certainly something that in my research team we're trying to work on now. Carolyn McGregor, Professor in Health Informatics at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, where we tell stories from and about the digital age. Subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or any other podcasting app. This program is a collaboration between UTS and 2SER. Thanks to Jake Morecambe, who was the interviewer for the first half of this episode. I'm your host, Lawrence Bull. Talk to you next time.